So this morning, we dive back into our series on this book of Philippians. And we started chapter 3 two weeks ago, and now we continue where we left off. And in terms of where we are, two weeks ago, we saw in Philippians 3, 1 through 3, that if you remember, we looked at this topic of worship. Worship. And by worship, we said that we aren't mainly talking about just what we do here on Sunday morning, although this is worship. Instead, by worship, what we're talking about, what the Bible is talking about, is honoring and loving the living God in our hearts. And two weeks ago, in verses 2 and 3, we saw some characteristics of false worship and some characteristics of true worship. And when we boiled it all down, we saw that false worship is any worship, any inclination in someone's heart in relation to God that relies on yourself. While true worship is, according to verse 3 here, by the Spirit, putting no confidence in yourself and glorying in Christ Jesus and who he is and what he has done, not glorying in yourself. So that was two weeks ago. But now that leads us to this week. And we go into a little detail concerning verses 2 and 3 because now, as you'll see in verse 4, we pick up in the middle of a sentence here about worship. And what we're going to see here in verses 4 through 8 is Paul essentially fleshing all that out about worship using his own personal testimony. Meaning he's going to make all this about worship personal and he's going to show us that although he could have put confidence in so many things, instead he puts no confidence in them in his relationship with God. And why? Because he found Jesus. And he found that Jesus is so much better than all those things. And that then leads us to how we'll go through our text together this morning. So we'll break our text up into two simple sections. Two simple sections. First, we'll see all the things that we perhaps could put our confidence in. That'll be verses 4 through 6. And then second, we'll see how Jesus compares to all those things. That'll be verses 7 and 8. So very simply, first, things we could put a lot of confidence in. Second, how Jesus compares to all of those things. But with that said, let's now dig into our text together and begin that first section. And again, here we'll see so many things that we could perhaps put our confidence in instead of Jesus. And for this, we're going to be in verses 4 through 6. But because verse 4 is in the middle of a sentence, we're going to read from verse 3 all the way to verse 6. So let's do that now. Look down at your Bibles. Philippians 3, verses 3 through 6. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So you can see what Paul is doing here. In verse 4, he essentially says, I have a lot of things I could have put confidence in. I could have relied on. In fact, I had more than most, is what he's saying. And what are those things? Well, he gives us a sampling list there in verses 5 through 6. And in terms of the list, there's seven things that are listed there. And to cover these, we are going to go quickly through each one, one by one, so we understand what Paul's getting at. 
But then after that, we'll categorize them because although there's a lot there, all that he says there neatly fits into two categories which will apply to us as well. But let's begin with each one. So look down at your Bibles. We'll go through these one by one quickly. So, Paul, so to begin, Paul says, quote, he was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning his parents obeyed the Old Testament law, which said you should do that. Second, he was of the people of Israel, meaning he was born into God's people, the nation of Israel. Third, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, meaning he wasn't just born into Israel, but he was born into a famous tribe of Benjamin. Fourth, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, most likely meaning he was an exemplary Hebrew. Fifth, Paul says, as the law of Pharisee, meaning he decided to join this religious group of Pharisees and tried to strictly obey the Bible the best he could. Sixth, he says, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. Now, this might be the strangest to us, but it makes sense when you see that by zeal, Paul means that he really cared about the Lord God of Israel's name and reputation. Because Paul is saying that that's why he persecuted the church, because he thought he was zealously protecting the Lord God of Israel's name from these seemingly false worshipers of Jesus. And finally, seventh, Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And that means that outwardly he looked and he tried to live in a way where no one could accuse him or blame him for wrongdoing. And so that's the seven things quickly. And when you add it all up, you have this man who was obedient from a very early age, who was born into a great tribe, who lived as a stellar example of one of God's people, who zealously tried to obey and love his God, and who even appeared outwardly blameless to a lot of people. But now, before we move on to our second point and see how Paul compares all that with Jesus, we can first apply this to ourselves by, as we said, categorizing all those seven things into two categories. Two categories. Because although, if we're honest, we recognize that a lot of those things in verses 5 and 6 seem like they have nothing to do with us 21st century Americans, when we boil them all down, we see that they represent things that we too could still put our confidence in instead of Christ. And as for the first category, we see that four of the things that Paul lists there just have to do with who he happens to be. Just who he happens to be. And you can see this with the first four things listed. Circumcised on the eighth day. People of Israel. Tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of Hebrews. All of those are not things that Paul did. But instead, they're just who he happened to be because of who God made him to be. In other words, Paul didn't choose to be circumcised on the eighth day. He didn't choose to be born in the people of Israel or the tribe of Benjamin, nor to be a Hebrew, but he was. And he could have taken a lot of confidence in all of that. And he's saying that at one point in his life, he did take a lot of confidence in all of that. So that's the first category, who he just happens to be. But then the second, second category builds on that. And it's the three last things listed there. And here Paul talks about what he did, right? what he achieved and what he felt. You can see this in his as to the law Pharisee, meaning Paul decided to join this religious group that was very respected, and he really tried to obey the law the best he could. Then you can see it in his as to righteousness under the law, blameless, meaning he truly did outwardly appeal, appear well and blameless, and like he obeyed the law really well. And finally, you can see it even in his as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. 
Because what he's saying there is that he truly had internal feelings of zeal and allegiance to God. And again, just like in the first category, he could have taken a lot of confidence in these things that he did. And at one point in his life, he did take a lot of confidence in them. And so now with all that said, we can see that although these seven specific things don't apply to us, essentially these two categories summarize what we too could put our confidence in. And they summarize what most people apart from Christ do put their confidence in, what we naturally do rely on. Because first, we can put our confidence in who we just happen to be, right? Meaning the family we grew up in or the traditions we were born into or the ethnicity we have or the country or the state we live in or our gifts and our talents. We can look at all those things and think that those things are what really define us. Or concerning our topic of worship that we're in here in Philippians 3, we could look at all those things and subtly think that because of them, we're a little closer to God. And the same is true when we look at the category of what we've done, what we've felt, what we've achieved. And let's be honest, this is perhaps even more true for us 21st century Americans. <laughs> because here the idea is we put our confidence in things like the education we have or the job that we work, or the money we've accumulated, or how good and kind we are towards people, or how we have a lot of friends, or how we're known as a pretty decent person. And just like with the first category about who we are, we can look at all we've done, and we can say, yeah, that's basically what defines me. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty great in these ways. And again, concerning the topic of worship, we can look at all we've done, and we can subtly think, we can be tempted to say in our hearts, see God, I've done my best. I'm at least a pretty decent person, so you should accept me. And so once again, we should see ourselves here in verses five and six. Because just like Paul, we have all these things about who we are, and we have many, many things that we've done that we could perhaps rely on and put our confidence in. One last thing before we move on to our second section, and that's how it needs to be clear that also what's unique about this list here is that all of those things, for the most part, are not bad or sinful things in themselves. The persecution of the church absolutely is, but besides that, all the things that Paul lists here were pretty good things. And not only that, but in Paul's day, these were things that would have been impressive and even beneficial and helpful to others. And so strange as it may sound, we, we should even consider that many of the things that we could put our confidence in apart from Christ might be good and even helpful things. And it's helpful for us to consider this morning because often, right, when we think about us before coming to Christ, we only think about our sins before Christ. And of course, that's good to do, but what's also helpful is thinking about all the good things that we could have put our confidence into instead of Christ. Because the gospel isn't only that we're sinners in need of a savior, that's true. But as we'll see, the gospel also teaches that even the best things about us can't compare to Christ. Which does lead us now to our second section. So that was all the things that we could perhaps put our confidence in. But now in verses 7 and 8, we'll see how Jesus compares to all those things. And to be honest, these are some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. They're jam-packed 
with beautiful information. Because of that, we're going to cover them here this morning. But then also next week, we're going to pick up in verse 7 and go through verse 11. But that being said, let's now pick up in verse 7 and see how Paul says, how Jesus compares to all the things in verses 5 and 6. And so for this, we'll read verses 7 and 8. So look down at your Bibles, Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so how does Jesus compare? Well, all those impressive and even good things when compared to Jesus go from the gain category to the loss category. And why? This is important. Not necessarily because they've become bad or anything. Instead, verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, because Jesus truly is of that much greater value and worth. In other words, what Paul's doing here and what we should do too, even this morning as we're sitting here, is he's comparing all he is and all he's done. Many genuinely good and helpful and impressive things, and then he's comparing all of that to Jesus Christ to the good news of the gospel, to what Jesus literally offers forevermore, to who Jesus is and Paul's real, real relationship with Jesus. And Paul is saying that all of those things look like nothing now. They're things that he'd willingly lose for his sake, all because Jesus is that much better. And specifically, he doesn't just count them as loss. That's what the Bible does say. But emphatically in verse 8, as you can see, he says he counts them, quote, as rubbish. As rubbish. And I point that out because this is famously jarring from Paul here. Especially in the original language. Because that word that the ESV translates as rubbish was a Greek word that literally means useless or undesirable material that's subject to disposal. In the Greeks, just to make it even more plain, use this word to primarily talk about two things. Just two things. First, trash or garbage or rubbish. And then second, this was the same word they used to talk about dung or feces or poop, to use the word that we would use. And so that's why it's so jarring from Paul here. As you're just hearing this on a Sunday morning, that's why it's so jarring because this means that what Paul's saying here is that all of those things before aren't just not as important, but he's also saying that now in comparison to Jesus, they're kind of like garbage. He's saying that all of those things that before were so impressive about him are now like stuff that goes in the toilet. And why, again, not because they've become bad in themselves, but because he's found something so, so, so much better in Jesus. And so the point for us is when you find Jesus, when you worship Jesus, the Bible's saying that something really happens when you see and understand the gospel and eternity and Jesus' personal love and grace and sovereignty and it leads you to say, in comparison with all I am and all that I've even done, he really is so much better. So that's what the Bible's saying here. But now to really press this home, 
Let me just share with you two illustrations that might help us feel a little more what God's word is getting out here. Two illustrations. They both break down when you overanalyze them, but I do hope they help us feel what's going on here. So two illustrations. First, imagine with me uh, that somehow, from a very young age, you were in some sort of experiment or something, and you grew up your whole life in a cave with very little light. And imagine in this situation, for your whole life, you subsisted just on water from a tap that was installed in the back of a cave, and from bread that just appeared in your cave every day. And then imagine that for entertainment, you had a few paper clips to play with. And imagine that you never knew of anything else. You thought this was just normal. And not only that, but you thought it was pretty great that you had constant water, that you had bread every day, and you had some paper clips to play with. And imagine that you lived in that situation for so long that you really started to love your bread and your water because you realized that they gave you life and you started to love your paper clips because you could bend them and connect them together and play with them and keep yourself entertained. But now imagine that somehow someone starts telling you from outside the cave that you can come outside the cave if you just walk out and follow their voice. And they tell you that outside the cave, there's a feast, which is all different sorts of food, like the bread. And not only that, but they tell you there's this thing called sunshine. There's a lake to swim in. There's a house for you to live in. And there's people who would love to even get to know you. For a while, you might be confused about all that, or, essentially, or you might be especially skeptical, and you'd be hesitant to go where you hadn't been before. But imagine one day you did go outside. You did eat the feast. You did enjoy the sunshine. You did swim the lake. You enjoyed some friends and you lived in a better home. Now ask yourself this. How would you feel? Well, for the sake of what we're seeing in Philippians 3, 7, and 8 here this morning, ask yourself, after all of that, how would the mere water and bread and paper clips look in comparison to everything else now? Well, you know the answer. They'd be as something that once seemed so important and so great and even satisfying, but now in comparison, they'd be things that you'd willingly lose as rubbish, as almost nothing. And why? Not because they've changed, but because now what you have found and what you have is so much better. So that's the first illustration of what the Bible's getting at here when it's talking about Jesus like this. But now for a second illustration. Now this time, imagine that before you knew Jesus at all, you were at the base of a large mountain and someone gave you this task to represent your life and what was important to you in your life by building a heap of rocks. Heap of rocks. The goal, they said, would be that each rock would be marked and it would represent something about your life. And your goal would be to make a heap and choose certain size rocks to represent different things about what you thought defined you. 
So imagine that you're putting stones upon stones on this heap of rock and the smaller stones would represent smaller things in your life like smaller traditions or smaller gifts you have while the larger stones would represent larger things in your life, things that are more important to you like bigger traditions or bigger achievements. And so you're doing this but now imagine as you're doing this somehow for the very first time you understand the gospel and Jesus. And not only that, but somehow, and I know this is a little far-fetched, but somehow God gave you some gift to fully realize with 100% crystal clarity the reality of the gospel and Jesus and everything that we believe. And so you know with crystal clarity that you are getting to be reconciled to the living God. You know with crystal clarity that hell is a place because of sin, but you don't have to go there because Jesus died for you. You know with crystal clarity that the new heavens and new earth are coming, and you get to live there forever because of what Jesus did for you. And not only that, but you know and experience with crystal clarity your relationship with the massive, good, glorious king of the universe, all because of what Jesus did. So imagine you're building this heap of rocks representing your life and you understand all that. You know again with 100% crystal clarity the reality of Jesus and the gospel. Well, what would happen to your heap? Well, the point of Philippians 3, 7, and 8 is that you'd realize that in comparison to your heap of rocks, Jesus and this good news literally is more like the mountain that you're standing under. He can't just fit onto the heap that you've made. (laughs) He can't just be another rock that you'd pick up. And so you'd look at your heap of rocks and then you'd compare that with the 10,000 foot mountain that you're standing under and you'd realize that in comparison to Jesus and this gospel and how it's all true, all of these rocks of yours are kind of like nothing. And again, just like the first illustration, this wouldn't be because your rocks got any smaller. Instead, it's just because they've dwindled in comparison to the mountain of what you now have forever in Jesus. Now, I know that both of those illustrations will break down in certain ways, but I hope we're now feeling at least a little bit the point of verses 7 and 8 here. Because this, brothers and sisters, is, Paul, is what Paul is essentially getting at when he talks about how he feels about Christ, and it's how we should feel about Christ too. And if you remember, it was Jesus himself who once used an illustration to show the same exact point in the Gospel of Matthew, but he did it brilliantly in just one verse. Because it was Jesus who said, the kingdom of heaven, meaning knowing the king and being in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered it up and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In other words, Jesus says there's a man who owns and has certain things. He has all he has but when he finds this treasure of the kingdom in the field, this gospel, he goes and joyfully sells everything he has. And why? To get that field so he can get that treasure. And the point is, the only reason he'd do that is because he knows that in comparison to everything he has, the treasure of the gospel of Jesus, of the king, is truly better. So that's the point. From Paul here, 
from the illustrations about the man in the cave and the heat versus the mountain, from Jesus' own illustration, the point is Jesus is of surpassing value and worth. And when we get this, everything pales in comparison. But now let's be honest. You may be hearing all this and thinking, that may be true, but I certainly don't feel like that all the time. And I bring this up because none of us feels like that all the time. And to be honest, that's expected. Because while the Bible does put this forward as the essence of what it means to worship Jesus and be a Christian, yet we all know that because of sin, even for us Christians, the Bible is clear that we often don't feel and live like this. And so it makes sense that we always don't feel like this. We're sinners. But what we do need to see here this morning, church, is that this still is the essence of what it means to feel and live and be a Christian. And so this means that a Christian looks at what's here in Philippians 3, 7, and 8 and at least says, yes, I do believe that. I do believe that Jesus is better and I want to at least feel more like this. And I can say that because, again, it was Jesus himself who said the essence of finding the kingdom of God is like this. It's not just some decision you make because you don't want to go to hell. God may use that, yes, but that's not relying on or treasuring or glorying in Jesus. That's just being afraid of hell. Instead, becoming a Christian is about finding a superior treasure in Jesus Christ. It's discovering him as being of better, surpassing worth. And it's saying, compared to everything else, to who I am and all I've done, Jesus and this gospel is so much better. So that's the point of verses seven and eight. And as we'll said, we will pick up there next week because there's still a lot here to see. But now before we finish our verses here this morning, there's one last question in all of this you might be wondering. And that's with all that said, you may now be asking, okay, Jesus is better, and it's true that all I've done and all the things of these world, this world can't compare to Jesus, but what do we then do with all the blessings that God gives us and all the gifts that God gives us to enjoy? And you might be thinking that because you may know that the Bible also teaches that God's the one who created this world and the Bible talks about many things that God gives us as his blessings and his gifts to us. So the question is, how does all that fit with what Paul says here in Philippians 3, 7, and 8 about Jesus being so much better that everything's counted as rubbish? Well, to answer this, and what we need to see and if you've studied parts of the Bible before, perhaps you've seen this even yourself, even if you've never had it explained like this, what we need to see is that the Bible puts forward two ways to look at the goodness of the world and God's blessing in it. Two ways. First way we can call the blessings view or the complementary view. And concerning this, the Bible says that the good things in our lives are real blessings and gifts. And not only that, but they help us worship God. They can complement our worship of God. And to show this view, we can even quote Paul himself again, this time in 1 Timothy 4, where he's blasting people who forbid enjoying God's gifts like certain foods or marital sex. 
And there Paul says, quote, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. In other words, it's evil, according to the Bible, to reject the goodness of God's gifts and forbid enjoying what God has given us to enjoy. And why? Because God created this world good and he blesses us. And as we enjoy his gifts, we know more about him and we can enjoy him. Or as one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, beautifully explained it, God's gifts are like sunbeams that come down from the sun, from God. And as we enjoy God's gifts, we can feel the warmth of the sun and we can also look back up through the sunbeam and see the radiance of the sun himself. And so that's the first way the Bible talks about how we should view God's earthly blessings and gifts, the complementary view. But then the second way the Bible also talks about this, we can call it the comparative view. The comparative view. And it's this that we're seeing in Philippians 3. It's this that all of our illustrations we're trying to illustrate. And it's this that we find in other places of the Bible too. Like in Psalm 73 where the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. And it's this that we see in some of our worship songs too. Like in When I Survey the Wonderful Cross. Where it says, Were all the realm of nature mine? that we're an offering far too small. And again, this is exactly what Jesus' parable of the field illustrated because although God's earthly gifts that we have are truly blessings, when we compare them to knowing God and Jesus and pleasure forevermore in him, those earthly gifts in a sense can't compare. And so those are the two ways the Bible talks about viewing the good things in this world Let me go over this in some depth this morning because the point for us this morning is that we as Christians should feel both of these. Because on the one hand, we don't want to be like the false teachers that Paul was rebuking strongly in 1 Timothy 4 and start denying the goodness that God has created in this world. But then along with this, we also need to keep this comparative view in mind, which is what we see in Philippians 3 here. And again, that's that compared to knowing Jesus and the gospel and everlasting life and his love, nothing here can compare. Yes, on the one hand, they are good, enjoyable, God-giving blessings, but on the other hand, when truly comparing them to Jesus, it's like playing with a paperclip and eating bread and water when a feast and sunshine and friends and a home is offered. Or it's like trying to compare a 15-foot heap of rocks to a 10,000 foot mountain or as the Bible says here as Paul saying it's comparing all the things you previously could have had confidence in to the peace the joy the salvation and the relationship you now have forever in Jesus and here's one last beautiful thing though on these two views this is true according to the Bible this really strikes home because we all know that deep down we all want to believe both of these views as well. And this, I think, is even a defense for Christianity's truthfulness. Because on the one hand, right, we all know that the world is good in many ways. Even non-Christians will say that this world is beautiful and enjoyable. And that's why God in the Bible tells us that that's true. We should enjoy this world. We all feel that deep in our bones. We want to enjoy this beautiful world and the things in it. But then on the other hand, 
we also, non-Christian and Christian, deep down in our bones know this can't be all there is. This can't be it. We were made for more. We feel that when someone we love passes away. We feel that when we get that promotion or that money or that relationship and it just doesn't satisfy like we thought it would or for as long as we thought it would. And all that is because as the Bible also says, like here in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, we were made for so much more. (laughs) Because not only were we made to live in a world forever without sin, but we were made to know the infinite majestic God, Jesus, the surpassing worth of Jesus. So that's our text. So first, we saw a lot of things we could put our confidence in apart from Christ, but then second, we saw how Jesus compares to all of those things. And how does he compare? He's of surpassing worth. And compared to him, all of our seemingly impressive things are counted as loss, all because he's that much better. And so now, as a simple application, the question you should ask yourself, especially after going these, over these two verses in verses 7 and 8, is, do I feel this myself? Do I feel this? Again, not perfectly, None of us feels this perfectly. Even Paul and other places in his letters will talk about how sin gets in his way. And so the question, do you always perfectly feel like Philippians 3, 7, and 8? That's not the question. Instead, the question is, do you read these verses here? Be honest with yourself about the surpassing worth of Jesus and say, yes, I believe that. I feel that. That's the heartbeat of the Christian, the heartbeat of someone who worships Jesus. And so do you feel that? If you don't at all, then to be honest, you may not know Jesus yet. You may know a lot about him. You may believe in his existence, but you may not truly know and trust Jesus. You may not have really trusted in Jesus and this good news But if that's the case, then I encourage you, even right now as you're sitting there, to do exactly what Paul did here in verses 4 through 8. I encourage you to weigh all that you think you are and all the things that you've done, many genuinely, I'm sure, good things, and then compare that to what we're talking about here this morning to the reality of the living God, to the reality of the gospel, which not only brings you uh, salvation, but reconciles you back to God, to the reality that a renewed earth is coming without sin, to the reality that Jesus can secure this relationship for you with the living God. Compare all of that to all the things that you've been listing in your head and see if it can compare. Because honestly, though, it It can't. (laughs) And the only reason that any of us would think that it could is because we don't really believe in the reality of all of this. Maybe you just think it's a religion. Maybe you're just here because it's what your family does, or it's just what you do. But let me just say all this about the gospel, about Jesus, about God, it's all real. Jesus is alive. He is God. He truly rose from the dead around 30 AD. He reigns as king over the world right now. He's coming back to make everything right again soon. And all we do to receive him is trust him. And if all of that is real, which it is, then nothing you and I are and nothing that we've done can compare to that. And so if you're here 
and you don't trust in Jesus, may you do so even right now this morning. Trust in this Jesus. He's real, and he truly is better. But one quick thing now as we close, and I hope this helps. That's our text. That's the application of our text. But now consider this. So I know this is a lot, and we're closing with this. And it might even seem radical as you're sitting there in some ways, what we're talking about. But as I was studying this, I was struck by this. So we're talking about all of this mainly as an idea now. But we have good biblical reason to believe that a hundred years from now, a hundred years from now, each one of us in this room, whether we're saved and we'll be with Jesus, or sadly, whether we're not and we'll be separated from him, a hundred years from now, each and every one of us will know with crystal clarity that what we just read in Philippians 3, 7, and 8 here is a hundred percent true. And I say that because then, a hundred years from now, most likely every single one of us in this room will have passed on and moved past the glitz and the glitter and the goodness of this world. And along with this, each and every one of us will have seen Jesus face to face and will know how real all of this is. And so then we'll be able to read verses like Philippians 3, 7, and 8 about Jesus being better and knowing Jesus more and having seen Jesus and having been able to compare Jesus to all the earthly things that we now enjoy and are going through, then, with crystal clarity, we'll be able to say with 100% certainty, yes, Philippians 3, 7, and 8 is absolutely true. Jesus is better. So we will know it for certain then. But for us Christians, we taste it now. Jesus is better. So church, let's continue to taste this, to believe this. Yes, to go out and enjoy the world, but above all, to frequently stop and realize that the Jesus who saved you and me, the gospel we believe, and the future we have in Christ is so, so much better. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.